Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Yes, you heard me correctly. Leviticus, the book our Bible reading plans go to die. (laughs) See, the truth is, Leviticus is a challenging book of the Bible. We wonder what this book full of ancient laws and rituals might have to do with my everyday life. Most of us might even wonder what Leviticus, the title, even refers to or means. So yes, I agree this book is really challenging, but I also believe this book is really rewarding if we put in just a little bit of work. And one excellent resource that I would recommend to help us sort through Leviticus is a little commentary by my old Testament professor, Jay Sklar. If you can believe it, this little book right here is a joy to read and to study what I've read of it. And he helped me this past week connect the world of Leviticus to our world in Columbus. And you'll hear his insights throughout this morning. And so let's turn to Leviticus 16. We are nearing the end of our summer sermon series on the cross of Jesus. Last week, Wes took us all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And he helped us see that the cross of Jesus is actually in the Garden of Eden. This time, the cross we will see is in the book of Leviticus. So let's take a look. Leviticus 16. I'm going to read the first 22 verses and you can follow along. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. Or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on a sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. And he is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And from the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household, the other priests. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the goat, for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for his sin offering. But the goat chosen by the lot as The scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it to the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. 
He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it in the front of the atonement cover. And then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering in the people and take its blood behind the curtain. Do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. And put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away. Into the desert, the cut off place, in the care of a man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all the sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. This is God's word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer, and Holy Spirit, would you? who breathed out this word, who superintended this word, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus and Him crucified and worship Him and love Him and then love others. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. I know when my in-laws are coming to town without even looking at the calendar, and here's how. All the bed sheets are in the wash, and we're cleaning the bathroom with Clorox. <laughs> That's how I know. Hosting folks in your home, I think, is actually a great accountability for keeping your house clean or your apartment, uh, wherever you're living, which is probably why our house was a disaster during the initial part of the pandemic. Can I get an amen? Because if only your Zoom screen is acceptable, then why bother, right? Why bother? I think we all do this. I've shared about um, President Barack Obama's visit to Columbus during his presidency a while back. And he sat down with a Clintonville family in their home and in their backyard. And I'm going to go on a limb and just assume that this family, and you may even know them, cleaned their kitchen before he arrived. Or possibly even undergoed some renovation projects for their home. See, we would all do the same. Craig Bartholomew and Paige Vanosky. They ask us to imagine living in the UK for a minute and then getting news that Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were moving next door for good. 
That would be shocking on the one hand, but it would also change the way we go about our lives from there on, wouldn't it? Well, something, something kind of like this, not entirely like this, but something kind of like this is at play in the book of Leviticus. See, basically, God, who is king of all kings, decides he wants to move into the neighborhood. So in the Garden of Eden, Wes took us there last week, we're told that God walked with Adam and Eve. Remember that? There was immediate divine presence. Intimacy with God. But after they sinned, they were expelled from his presence. But here in Leviticus, God says, I am drawing near again. So it's one thing, I think, to host your in-laws for the weekend. It's another thing altogether to host Yahweh, the thrice holy king of all kings. And so on the one hand, Israel was offered amazing proximity to God. But proximity is not intimacy. Intimacy is, as it's been said, being fully known and fully loved at the same time. And remember, as we read about, and as we learned last week, Israel and all humanity have a sin problem. And so how can Israel have intimacy with God? How can, if you think of it this way, Eden be restored? Well, that question is what drives the entire book of Leviticus and the ancient annual ritual that we just read about, the Day of Atonement. Yom As I read this chapter, you might have been thinking, I don't know, but you might have been thinking this day of atonement is really elaborate. And we might have even secretly wondered if it was maybe too elaborate. Well, I would just point out that elaborate ritual is everywhere you look. Just go to a baseball game at Huntington Park to see some elaborate ritual. Or pay attention to the next wedding you attend to see some elaborate ritual. Jay Sklar points out the modern wedding and he says this, the more elaborate the ritual, the more likely it is that we're reading of something significant. And so this Day of Atonement must be significant. And it is. Because the Day of Atonement answers the question, I think, beneath all questions of human life. And that question is, how can I have intimacy with God? Do you believe that? That the question beneath every struggle, the question beneath every question in life is, how can I have intimacy with my Creator? The Day of Atonement answers that question, and it answers it in two ways. First, we must experience God's greatness, and second, we must experience God's goodness. In many ways, these two descriptors of God, greatness and goodness, 
summarize the entire book of Leviticus. God is greater than we realize. God is more good than we realize. Scholar puts it well. There is no one as great as him and no one as good as him. Both are true. Isn't that amazing? And experiencing both from him is what it means to have intimacy with God. So first, to have intimacy with God, we must experience his greatness. The Day of Atonement tells us this right off of the bat. It tells us two things. God is God, and it also tells us we are not. The first few verses of of Leviticus 16 display the utter greatness of God. God is God. Okay? That's simple, but sometimes we forget this. Okay? God is God. And in two ways we see it here. His greatness means that he is left to ourselves unapproachable, utterly unapproachable. We see this in verse 1. Which reminds us of the shocking death of two priests who approach God on their own terms. We don't approach God any old way, is the takeaway. And then verse 2 tells us we don't approach God any old time. Sometimes we forget just how holy God is. He is, again, left to ourselves. And without His invitation, utterly unapproachable in His holiness, in His greatness. But God's greatness also means he is sovereign. Notice in verse 2 that God says, Do not come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Now, I think we need a quick lesson in tabernacle architecture uh, to understand this warning. The tabernacle, as you see it, is basically God's royal home. And the further inside you go from that outside line boundary to the court where the altar and the basin exist, to what's called the holy place, this 20 by 10 cubit smaller rectangle, to what is called the most holy place, this 10 cubit square, perfect square of God's presence where the ark exists or the mercy seat exists. We get a sense that we are looking at his holy habitation, his holy house, where God himself sat down at the ark. And so God's message to Moses is clear. This is my throne room. And as Scar puts it, you don't barge in to the throne room. So think for a moment about your own house or your own apartment or even your own dorm. Like the tabernacle, we have layers of intimacy, don't we, in our own home architecture. The porch, the living room, and then the bedroom. I think most of us would find it awkward at best if we introduced our new friends to our home and the first thing they did is jumped into our bed and went through our closet. Why is that awkward? Do I even need to answer? It's awkward because it's intimate. It's very awkward. 
How much more awkward and inappropriate and lack of boundary is it to sort of rush into the Holy of Holies and with the Holy Sovereign King of all kings on our own terms, in our own way, and in our own timing? That's the first takeaway I think we get from this ancient ritual is this, that God is God. But the second thing we see right away is that we are not. God is great. God is God. We are certainly not. We are not only his creation. So his creation, not God, not divine in that sense at all. But we also have a sin problem, a rebellion problem that we read about in Genesis 3 that needs to be acknowledged and needs to be in some way dealt with. And we see this in full display in verses 3 through 10. So verse 3 says, only, quote, in this way can you come into the holy place. And so on the one hand, God is, yes, unapproachable in our own terms. But on the other hand, gosh, he is gracious because he says here there is a way to approach him. By God's, we'll call it threefold invitation, the sin offering the burnt offering, and the scapegoat. Hang on to those three rituals, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the scapegoat, and consider those three things, God's threefold invitation into His presence, intimacy. These three things, these three rituals, which we'll get into the specifics of in a moment, but notice for now how each ritual communicates our profound Need for God's initiation and grace. Without His provision, we are separated from God. But with His provision, we can have what the Bible calls Kippur, atonement. Atonement is the English translation for Kippur, and the reason that they chose the word atonement, my understanding, is because they took a three-letter, a three-word phrase, and smushed it together into one word. At one mint. At one mint. At one mint. How can we in our separation from God become at one again with God? At one mint. Kippur. Atonement. Well, according to Leviticus, it is through these offerings and through this scapegoat in the Old Testament, which means that both priests and people have a sin problem that separates them from God. Atonement, if you look at the shadow side of atonement, it's basically proclaiming that we have a separation from God problem. We are not at one with our Creator, like we should be, like we're designed to be, like we were made to be, Genesis 1 and 2. When I traveled to Bethlehem about six years ago, I got to step into what is called the Church of the nativity. Maybe some of you have been there even. But to step into this magnificent church, you must first walk through what is called the door of humility. Sadly, when I was there, this door was being restored. So picture scaffolding. And I had to walk through the big doors. So I didn't have to humble myself to walk into this church. I could walk in proud. But the point remains, to enter the presence of God, we get on our knees. And that is what the Day of Atonement says to us. We will not have intimacy with the true God, the true God, the true triune God, thrice holy God, unless 
we first acknowledge His greatness and our great need. That is the door of humility we all must walk through. And that is frankly the scandal of the gospel. Intimacy with God without first acknowledging His greatness and our great need means that we are not intimate with the true God. Maybe a God of our own imaginations, but unfortunately not the Holy God. We might have a relationship with what retired Pastor Tim Keller has called a Stepford God. There was a television series in the early 70s that took place in Stepford, Connecticut. And it was a feminist satire in which husbands were married to robots who did their every bidding. Nobody would consider their marriages intimate. Nobody would consider their marriages real. Well, a step for God, according to Keller, means God does our bidding. But that is not intimacy. There is no real intimacy with the real God until and unless that God is the holy Holy Yahweh of Scripture. Which takes us to our second point about the Day of Atonement. Yes, God is great, but God is good. And that is on full throttle display in this Day of Atonement. And we see this there in three days, in three ways. Number one, He offers atonement. We talked about atonement. He offers a way. He offers a way to be at one atonement at one man. This is God's idea. This is God's gift. In fact, Leviticus 17, 11 says this explicitly. Quote, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, speaking of the atonement sacrifices, and I have given it for you. God says, I, God says, have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Commenting on this verse, Jay Sklar makes the point that this turns religious sacrifice on its head. This is the very opposite of common human impulse, he writes, to earn salvation from God. It is a bold declaration that salvation comes only when God in His grace grants it to us. Religion says we must sacrifice to earn God's love. We must sacrifice to get God's intimacy. But God says, you already have my love. You already have my intimacy. Sacrifice is something I give you. It's my gift. He offers it. He also offers cleansing. That is what all the blood is for, frankly. In verses 11 through 19, as you heard it read, there was a lot of blood. wasn't there. Well, we don't know exactly why this is the case, but we do know from context that blood in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, was like ancient Clorox. I don't know how else to put it. It was a cleansing agent. And so the image in verses 11 through 19 we should have is that God is cleaning His house from the inside out. Imagine that image we had a minute ago. He starts... In the inside room, the most holy throne room, verses 11 through 15, if you take a look down at your text. And then the next room out is cleansed again by blood in the holy place. And then the next room out, the whole court where the altar is, is cleansed by this blood. And this is again to cleanse, or the text says to consecrate, because why? Our sin 
brings uncleanness to it. And the blood cleans it of these sacrifices. When I was in college, I had a mentor named Ramin. And we were talking about the Bible. And he said, do you know why blood is important, Joe? And then I was kind of new to the faith. And I'm reading about all this blood. And I'm like, what is going on? And he's like, you know why blood is important in the Bible, right? And I go, yeah, yeah, totally, man. Yeah, totally. Which is a bummer. Because I missed out on a real teaching moment. <laughs> and I went years and years without even knowing the answer to that question. Why is it important? I mean, we sing songs about the blood. I had a neighbor, actually, when we moved into our house about 12 years ago, professor of philosophy at Ohio State. He had some students in his classroom who were uh, believers, and he was really, like, concerned. He's like, they keep talking about blood. That's weird. Isn't it? And I had to say, yeah, that is weird. <laughs> I grant you that. I grant you that, yes. But now I know why it's important. The blood washes. It washes. It's a cleansing agent. And the Lord, by His grace, offers a way to be clean. But just to say, He offers forgiveness. He offers total cleansing. We return to the scapegoat in verse 20, if you take a look. The scapegoat. And so to understand this a little bit better, we rewind the verse 7 to remind ourselves of what this goat is for. He is to cast lots for the two goats. One will be the scapegoat. Verse 9, Aaron shall bring the goat who's lost fallen the Lord and sacrifice it, but the other one is presented alive to make atonement. So we start with two goats. One dies and becomes a sin offering to clean, to clean house. The other stays alive and becomes a sin, not a sin offering, a sin bearer. We can't be certain, but in some translations, like an ESV translation, for instance, this goat is called Hazazel. And that's exactly what the Hebrew says. And we can't be 100% certain what that word means, but it likely either means the go-away goat, or it means maybe rough place. And so this goat is either a go-away goat or a rough place goat. And both are great options because the goat goes away to a rough place. Why though? To bear Israel's sins far away. That's why. Check it out, verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And that goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. That word remote could be a cut off area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So Sklar would point out that if sin was like dust or grime that needs Clorox by blood, here sin is like anthrax that needs put away. It's like a toxic agent that needs put out of camp as far away as possible. 
And so Aaron leans on the goat with both hands, transferring their sin and this penalty to the goat. So the goat is sent away into the wilderness, literally this cut off place. Sin cuts us off from the divine life. And sin cuts us off from the community life. But this goat is cut off in our place. This is the forgiveness of God. He, he gives his people a public, memorable, undeniable event every single year with this Day of Atonement that says, you are forgiven. Now, that's not everything in this chapter. We didn't even read all of it. There's washings, there's burnings, there's resting. Uh, but that's enough for us to be crystal clear this morning. God is great. God is also good. And if his greatness, goodness is on full display in this ancient day of atonement, how much more is his greatness, goodness on full display at the cross? Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, really, who, unlike Aaron, does not need to purify himself. with blood from the animal. But instead can purify others with his own blood. Jesus, like the sin-bearing goat, takes on how much of our sin How much? How much? All of it. Bears it away. Is sent to the cut off place so that you will never, ever, ever be cut off from the divine life. Jesus the author of Hebrews says, enables us to enter that unapproachable place, the most holy place. The shocking boldness. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place, by what? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. Opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And with a full assurance. The full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled. To cleanse us. Sprinkle. Think of the sprinkling of the blood we just read about. To cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Who has a guilty conscience? To cleanse that. And having our bodies washed with pure water. It's been said by others that nobody dares wake up the king for a glass of water in the middle of the night. Unless that person is the king's dear son or daughter. 
And that is what we are because of the once and for all day of atonement called Good Friday. Where Jesus makes us his own. So three things to consider in light of this great passage of scripture. Number one, don't tame the true God. Don't tame him. God is God and we are not. This day of atonement doesn't even make sense unless our sin and impurity is a problem in light of his holiness. And the cross of Jesus doesn't really even make sense unless God is more holy than we often admit. I fear our God is often too small, to quote J.B. Phillips. I fear our God is often too safe, to quote Mark Buchanan. But this passage, I think, can right-size God in our worship. The second thing I would say in light of this great passage of Scripture is don't super-spiritualize God. Notice in this passage how earthy and how bodily and even how sensate or sensible it is. The smells, the feels, the sights. Well, God loves his creation. He's engaged in it and with it. And since he made it, he wants to redeem it. And too often we make our faith about spirituality. But this passage tells us that according to the Lord, our bodies matter. This world matters. Matter matters. And this is why we have a high view of the sacraments, by the way. I love that the Lord gave Israel a visible, memorable picture of their forgiveness with that go away go. Because they could watch their sins go away. They could see it in with their eyeballs. And so can we every Sunday as we gather, as we walk up this aisle, we can actually taste, we can actually touch, we can actually feel the forgiveness of God. Jesus, by the Spirit, is present. In his table. That's how he works. So don't super spiritualize the Lord. He loves this world. He loves you. And I'll say this last to close. Don't rebuke God. What I'm talking about specifically is rebuking what God says about his scandalous grace. Whenever we doubt God's forgiveness, whenever we doubt his covenant committed love towards us, whenever we doubt his profound love of you, even his profound like of you, whenever we doubt that, we are essentially rebuking God at his face. We're rebuking his words to us. We're saying to him, I know better than you. But in Christ, God bears all of your sin away. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Once and for all, all you have to do is lean on him like Aaron leans on the goat. And your sins are transferred away. Did you know that in the Day of Atonement, there are, there are th- in the whole Testament, there are basically three categories of sins. There's what's called intentional sins or high-handed sins. And then there's unintentional sins. Oops, I didn't know I did something wrong. And then there's this middle category. We'll call them kind of, maybe not, in unintentional, intentional sins. But we read in the Old Testament that there is a Thomas sacrifice for the, for the unintentional sins. There is a Thomas sacrifice for the intentional, unintentional sins. There is not a Thomas sacrifice for the high-handed sin. But did you know that on the Day of Atonement, God offers atonement even for that? It's right there in verse 16. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their pesha, their transgressions. That's high handed rebellion. So don't you dare rebuke God and say, Your grace doesn't even cover me.
because of what I've done, because of who I am. That never-to-be-repeated day of atonement that is forever covers evil. That's how radical God's grace is. Do you think you're unforgivable? Do you think you're too far gone? The day of atonement shows you a God who's great enough and good enough to bring you home, to give you intimacy. That's what you want. That's what we all want. And that's what you have in Jesus. So Jesus, we come to you now. We love you. We love you. We love your word. Even when it's confusing, most of all, we love Jesus whom it points to And we thank you for the full atonement that he brings. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.